0: Hi, i'm christine and i'm alan we'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week
1: our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful
0: so now we invite you to join us as we together
1: listen, listen for, for the, the word.
0: word welcome everybody to our podcast today We are continuing on with the Sermon on the Plain that we started last week. So we are still in Luke 6, verses 27 through 38. And I think this is a special one. We don't always get this far in the Revised Common Lectionary. Ellen, why don't you take it away?
1: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, because Epiphany... Um, is flexible in terms of how many weeks you have an Epiphany depending on when the date of Easter falls. You know, some years you only have four weeks of, of Epiphany. You have the Baptism of the Lord, four weeks of Epiphany, and then the Transfiguration Sunday. And and so, you know, this is like the sixth week after Epiphany the sixth week of, of, of the season of Epiphany, and we don't often get to this lesson. And, and, and unfortunately, we rarely go beyond this. And in, in the Revised Common Lectionary, the rest of the Sermon on the Plain is is taken up. It would be in Epiphany 7, but we rarely have an Epiphany mm-hmm. 7 because um, uh, Epiphany is rarely that long. And so, you know, in, in that section, besides what we're dealing with this week on Loving Your Enemies, the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Jesus also addresses issues related to our attitude toward the sins of others in relation to our own sins. He talking about he talks about the speck in your eye versus the log in another's eye, and then, ironically, in my opinion, followed by a statement about telling the difference between a good person and an evil person based on their fruits. You know, a good yes, tree yes. And, and a bad tree, and then. Um, concluding with an emphasis on how one responds to Jesus' teachings with those who hear them and put them into practice like to one who builds a house on a foundation, while those who aren't who don't are likened to those who build a house with no foundation, which is similar to the way in which the Sermon on the Mount concludes.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, and again, this has that, some of those similarities with Matthew. I yes, mean, I indeed. think there is some some definitely similar language. But can, Why don't you explain that? Yeah, the, the
1: relationship between the two is kind of interesting here. And you know, we uh, last week we talked about the Beatitudes, and and you know, in, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, it seems like Luke is just going off. You know, a lot of it is just his own material. And and there's hardly any real parallels with Matthew. But in the rest of the Sermon on the Plain, Luke or his source seems to be summarizing material found in the Sermon on the Mount. So as as opposed to these expansions that we've seen with the Beatitudes, he's sort of condensing um, the content. And some of what Luke includes in the Sermon on the Plain can be found elsewhere. In Matthew's gospel, suggesting it was connected to a possible oral saying source, and that they used the materials found there differently. I think if it was there, if it were in a say uh, written saying source, they might have been more. Um, um, I don't know. There might have been more of a of an emphasis on keeping the order of the sayings in the written source as as they had it. But I think this points us to more of an oral saying source. Myself. Mm -hmm. Now, another interesting feature of the Sermon on the Plain is the fact that while the themes Jesus addresses are the same as the ones in the Sermon on the Mount, in some places the wording is so different that it raises a question about whether this material came from an oral saying source instead of a written saying source. The language that Luke uses is very different from the language of Matthew.
0: Is it typical the rest of Luke or is it just
1: No, not necessarily. I mean we saw we saw the passage on John the Baptist, you know, it was word for word. There are places, you know, long petty places where Matthew and Mark I mean Matthew and Luke are in word for word agreement. Uh, and so, uh, this is this is interesting that we yeah. have this kind of phenomenon as well. And that's that again. That's the definition of the synoptic problem. Right. We have these places where they're word for word agreement, even, and we have these places even where they have similar material. The wording is very different. Hmm. Um, in some places, Luke's wording is very similar to Matthew's, and so this combination of agreement of diff and difference is found really throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Plain. And th- this is uh, you know, uh, a textual critical remark, but as, as is common in the synoptic gospels, there are a fair amount of variant readings in this section of Luke, because wherever the, the synoptic gospels differ from one another, the later scribes who were copying the manuscripts couldn't resist the temptation to correct the text by making it line up with Matthew's version.
0: I did not realize this about oh, yeah. this. Oh, that's and that's a so common
1: phenomenon in the Greek New Testament. Yeah, yeah. Yeah
0: this this was i don't know why i didn't think of it here but it 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 kind of is being this correction to make it mass with matthew but it seems like this idea of collapsing the gospels was a long time in the
1: church well i mean as even as i said before even even from from the beginning from like the second century matthew was seen as being the first among the gospels
0: right 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 so um we need to continue on with the Sermon on the Plain. And of course, we know from last week that really that's all about this great reversal. Yes. So does that continue now? And
1: it does, yes. This section of the Sermon on the Plain continues the themes that we have seen already. Last week, we talked about this with the Beatitudes. These themes are so central to Luke's gospel. And, it, and really, it deals with the ways in which the social constructs of the kingdom of God completely reverse Mm -hmm. the conventional social constructs of the day and and as i said you know last week i mean we see this in the in the infancy narratives we see this in the magnificat we see this in jesus sermon at nazareth you know and so and we're going to see it it runs throughout luke's gospel we're going to see it in the parables that are unique to to luke's gospel Mm -hmm. so this is this is huge in in luke's gospel and so Jesus says, I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's Luke 6:27-28. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and and to me, I hear echoes of the ideas presented in Jesus sermon at Nazareth and even in the beatitudes um and and they're being summed up now in the command mm-hmm. to treat even enemies as if they were friends or even family. Mm. And yeah, that would have yeah, been yeah. that would have been huge, because that's that's the idea. I mean, the, the 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 good and the goodness and kindness and love that Jesus is advocating that you know those who follow Him extend to all people. Um, that was the kind of way you treated your friends and your family. Yes, yes, you yes. know. And and Jesus is saying now treat everyone this way, even enemies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is <laughs> that was huge. Well, I think it still is. I mean, it yeah, just doesn't. It is. This doesn't equate with how we respond to the world naturally. No, this because some- enemies
1: are, are such because they pose pose a threat to mm-hmm. us, right? Exactly. So yeah. what
0: a what a, you know what a radical, what a radical thing. To Absolutely.
1: Say. And so the community of the disciples is going to be defined by the fact that they include even those who are outside and even those who are hostile. And they're all going to be included in the open handed sharing that constitutes the group that's 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 mm-hmm. that's love your enemies is is right, basically right. this sort of open-handed sharing Uh, Of of sharing without expecting anything in return that that, that's what Jesus is about here in this command to love your enemies and so the sentiment that loving one's enemy includes doing good to those who hate you blessing those who curse you praying for those who abuse you you know that's really kind of he's he's dispelling it out and making it very specific but it's also parallel with the idea in Matthew that loving one's enemy means praying for those who persecute you so this is Luke's version of, of that in in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, you know, we have a prime example of Luke and Matthew both addressing the same theme but using very different language to do so.
0: Oh uh, yeah. And I'm fascinating. And I I'm just I'm I keep thinking about this broad call of, of Jesus too. I mean, this goes against what I want to do. And yet when you think about the number of you know, brain cycles that you are spending on who hurt my feelings, mm-hmm. who did something and if i could turn that if we could turn that into this kind of prayer for somebody what can i do for them exactly it really How can I changes be generous it changes them. your whole your whole mindset and it, it really reflects this this world created by god and all of these these people in it and that's, it's, it's exactly pretty right. awesome, that's exactly right that's exactly right you know right. to think about but yet at the same time I see this is very radical because this kind of goes it goes against the grain of all of us Mm -hmm. it goes
1: against the grain of human nature you're Mm -hmm. right you're right Mm -hmm. Now, the command to love one's enemy, then, is expanded by Jesus here to include non-retaliation, as in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're more familiar with the version of it in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's it's basically the same idea. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And I'm, I'm here I'm reading it, I'm trying to say, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the left also, because that's the way Matthew right, says it right, in the Sermon right, on the Mount, right. right? But if anyone, in Luke, it just says, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Mm-hmm. Give to everyone everyone who begs from you and if anyone takes away your goods do not ask for them again mm-hmm. <laughs> you know think I mean let that sink in you know right. if anyone takes away your goods do not ask for them again yeah <laughs> the right to property is something that is so fundamental in our name and in, right, in our understanding exactly. you know uh, that that really does, does cut against the grain Now I find it interesting that the order of the two garments. In, in Luke's gospel, if any, from, and from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt, the order of the two garments actually makes better sense in Luke than in Matthew. Matthew has Jesus say that if anyone wants your ketone, or your, the garment more next mm-hmm. to your skin, let them have your hemation or the cloak, or the outer garment also. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense, because normally it was the outer garment oh, right. that was used as pledge or could be taken as right. payment for a debt. So it it doesn't make a lot of sense in Matthew. In Luke, the order's reversed. If anyone wants to take your Hamadion, your cloak, or your outer garment, let them have your ketone, your shirt, or the garment worn next to your skin as well. Yeah, and and I believe it was Willard Swartley. uh, There's a book called... Love of enemy and non retaliation in the New Testament. He's a Mennonite scholar, and Mennonites are known for this, right? right? But uh, he said I think it was he who said that basically the idea is if someone sues you to take your outer garment, give them your inner garment also, which means you'd be walking away from them, start naked. Right. <laughs> and right. thus exposing the you know, the ridiculousness of what are you gonna do with my cloak? Right, you know, right. why do you need my cloak? You've got probably plenty on your own. And so uh, that's a kind of an interesting take on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So here, though, the ethic of love for enemy seems to be applied in a more passive way or in terms of the way one responds to provocation. But one could see this also as a proactive determination as well. The idea is that, you know, I have decided that I am not going to retaliate no matter what. And, and you know, we're, we're going to see by what follows that... Really, what's going on here, this love of enemy, is a proactive stance in a very real sense Mm -hmm, of the term. mm
0: -hmm, Wow. So um, then, of course, we have the golden rule. And yet, it seems to be placed differently It is.
1: It is, Yeah, In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, the golden rule comes in chapter 7, verse 12, which is toward the conclusion. The Sermon on the Mount is summing up by now. And so Matthew places this sort of as a summation of Jesus' teachings in in Luke's sermon on the plain it, it occurs kind of right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And and it's sort of a pivotal kind of a teaching, mm-hmm. but I think we're we're meant to understand that when Matthew when Luke includes do unto others as you would have them do unto you, he understands this from the perspective of yeah. love your enemy, you right, know, basically.
0: Right, right. And
1: and so, you know, in in the wider social context this ethical principle do unto others as you would have them do unto right. to you was widely known but it was and here's the thing it was it tended to be applied on the basis of the reciprocity the very reciprocity of client patron relationships that Jesus was seeking to overturn right right so you know this would have been nothing new in in that sense but in this context it's very radical and very mm-hmm, very groundbreaking mm-hmm. yeah
0: um so um the Sermon of the Plain continues after the, um, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you?
1: Right, right. etc.
0: So I guess um, build on that a little bit more. How does this how does this fit into the... Well,
1: again, I think Jesus, again, Jesus is taking on that that fundamental social construct of, mm-hmm. of reciprocity that was built into the social structures of client-patron relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he basically... Says that this is entirely inadequate to the kingdom of God. This is not the way of the kingdom. So,
0: yeah, because that isn't a big deal. I mean, really, you know, if they love you, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Yeah. Right. It's not, that's not really a big deal.
1: Yeah. But, but he's talking about something broader. Right. Here. You know, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Right. So, even, even, even the worst of people know to repay. Those who give to them is the idea. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. So, you know, the idea is, again, Jesus is taking on that, that notion of a sort of a a, a balanced reciprocity, yes, right? Yeah, okay, I'll give you yes. this if you give me that, right? 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 And you'll you know, I'll will give you this loan, but you have to sign this and promise to repay me with this amount of interest. And you know that that kind of balanced reciprocity, Jesus is sort of exploding that and 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 saying that just is that kind of ethic is entirely that, inadequate to the kingdom of God.
0: Right? Exactly. It's it's it's, it's almost the uh, the backwards. I I. I jotted down. It's kind of the eye for an eye, but the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly. it's it's, it's a po- more of a positive swift, but it's still not that radical kind of no. love that I think I think Jesus is wanting us to get a hold of. So, yes, yes, concept.
1: Well, and Luke Luke makes some interesting choices with regard to vocabulary here. Uh, Matthew asks, "What reward do you have?" and he uses the word mistas which means wage or reward and it's a common word, or what more are you doing? Luke asks, what credit is that Mm -hmm. to you? And the word here is charis. What Mm. charis is that to you? At which we all know is the word for grace, especially referring to God's gracious and free gift of love. But here the word is used differently in sort of a passive sense of a favor granted to someone or perhaps even probably approaching the idea of reward. Uh, the Common English Bible translates it, why should you be commended? And I think that's a pretty good translation, mm-hmm. basically. And of course, later on in verse 35, Luke is going to reference the idea of a reward or a misthos. So that's about, that's kind of what's going on here. But it's kind of interesting that Luke uses. Uses the word charis with that kind of notion because that's not something we usually mm. see in the New mm. Testament.
0: Yeah, it is interesting.
1: And also, while Luke describes the idea of extending goodwill to those who repay you in kind as something that sinners do, yeah. Matthew ascribes that behavior to tax collectors and Gentiles. <laughs> and and even, even though there's a difference there, um, both Matthew and Luke, in both cases, those who live within the boundaries of strict reciprocity, that balanced reciprocity of patron-client relationships are labeled as outsiders to the community because the community is defined by the unconditional love of God, right? Right. Which which does not demand that kind of repayment.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's very, it's very interesting.
1: So really the general idea here is that the command to love goes beyond natural boundaries that people tend to observe Mm -hmm. and extends to all, particularly those who may not be able to reciprocate. Mm -hmm. So not only does Jesus teach non-retaliation, which may seem more like a passive form of the command to love, he also instructs those who would follow him to extend love to all with no thought of reward. And here we see, I think, the more proactive side of the command to love here.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've read this many, many times, but as I as I work through it with you, I'm just this is just so awesome. It's, when you
1: see it in when you when you really focus on the way it's used in Luke's context, it stands out all the more.
0: It's it's both it's both terrifying in a way, mm-hmm. and but yet in a way it's so freeing at the same time. Uh, frankly,
1: it's almost as if Matthew kind of waters it down a bit by the other th- stuff that he puts in mm-hmm. the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke kind of. Puts almost more of a laser focus on this. This is the central theme of this, Luke's gospel. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So um, how does it continue?
1: Well, with that in mind then, Jesus says, but love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. So again, this kind of love that Jesus expects his disciples to practice is the kind of love that expects nothing that, in return, but rather is given as pure kindness Pure grace,
0: and, and that is God's love for Absolutely. us. Absolutely, which is crazy. And, and that is the basis for this. Yeah. yeah, that
1: is the basis yeah. for this. You know, and and really, also, you know, um, this idea is one that's very down to earth here as well. It's very practical as well because he, he's talking about lending. Now, this is not some spiritual concept. This is the concept of lending material resources, giving what what someone doesn't have and asks for to them without expecting anything in return yeah yeah so yeah
0: yeah, yeah. it's not just yeah it's it's I mean, I think I think we tend to think of this as this nice spiritual space, and he charity is a spiritual it. thing. We've pushed it; it comes with that social social justice. He's brought it thing down to earth. About. He's mm-hmm. brought it down
1: to earth, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to use the justice of the kingdom. You know, he right. brought it down into the context of the justice of the kingdom, uh-huh, and the perfect. justice of the kingdom even includes lending what you have that others need without expecting to be repaid.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: So that's, you know, again, that's very consistent with what we've already seen from Jesus. And we see how Jesus' message about the kingdom of God, again, directly contradicted the system of patron-client relationships, where there was always something expected in return mm-hmm. for a gift, let alone a loan. Right. <laughs> you know, a loan, it was just taken for granted that you were going to repay a loan, but even with a gift, there was always something expected in return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so yeah. this, whole, this whole notion of this ethic of, of a love that gives and expects nothing of return would have created a scandal in the world of his day, both the Jewish world and the Roman world, because mm-hmm. everybody lived by that, by that principle of balanced reciprocity. Everybody mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Now, Joel Green suggests that this may imply that Jesus' audience, I think perhaps better Luke's community, was composed of those who had the means to be able to lend. And so this brings us back to, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about that last mm-hmm. time about how it's possible that the the community that Luke was writing the gospel for was a community that had the means. They had things that right. could be stolen from them. Right. They had things that they could lend to others, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they had more than just what they needed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting interesting point. I don't know that it wouldn't imply that would that wouldn't might go to everybody too. Right. But, oh yeah, um, right, right. But right. I think that's a fair that's a fair analysis. You yeah. know, obviously some of those people listening had, Absolutely. had money to spare. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now for all of this talk of, of doing things without thought of Repayment. There is a reward, and and mm-hmm. uh, Luke uses the word misthos for following this path. Jesus goes on to say in verse thirty-five, "Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked." Now, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to skip a little bit of my notes because, inter- interestingly, Joel Green suggests that the way that new RSV is punctuated implicitly connects the idea of reward more, clo- more closely with being children of the most high. So the new RSV or punctuates it, your reward will be great, comma, and you will be children of the most high. So the reward is that you're going to be children of the most high, semicolon. And then the rationale for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Oh. In his commentary, Joel Greenpunks writes it this way: Your reward will be great; semicolon.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And you will be children of the Most High, comma for he is kind to the grateful, to the ungrateful, and the wicked. So there, being children of the Most High, is more connected with God's character, and I like mm-hmm. that take on it I, I i agree with him i think i think the new rsv miss it here because mm. i i i think the point is not that your reward is that you will be children oh, the right, most high right but rather that your reward will be great but you'll be children of the yes, most high yes, because yes. you'll be emulating god's character right. and that really that and i think that's the point here is that the basis for this ethic of love extended freely to all is the character of god particularly God's quality of being kind or benevolent, and it's the word Christos. And me me and my Greek New Testament mind, I go to 1 Peter 2.3, which cites Psalm 34.8. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, the word in the Septuagint is Christos. Kind is the idea. If you have tasted that the Lord is kind. And, and really, this is a common theme. The, the Christos, the Christotitas of God is a theme throughout the Psalms, especially in the refrain, the Lord is good, his unfailing love endures forever. So then really the, the reward basically is an intrinsic one. You know, the reward yes, is yes, that you yes. know that you are emulating right, God's character, exactly. and you are acting exactly. as a child of God. Yes, yeah.
0: yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. This, there's so many. There so many nuggets here that are in, uh, uh, awesome. I the, the and that, this word analysis again that you miss out if you aren't dig into the Greek, which mm-hmm. you know a lot of our listeners, I'm sure get busy and well, don't see that.
1: I, I'm, I'm just winding up. Yeah. There's more to come well, here. Well, good. Well, then I was,
0: was going to say on that one, but I think also this punctuation, which yeah. the average person, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you dig in, you try it differently, but you probably would go back and feel corrected. I I don't know what the other versions have. I don't either. I um, didn't check that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, many of us use the newer revised standard version. So, you know, we would have, Right. be processing it the other way. And right. that punctuation was added by right. the, by the by editors, the editor. by the translators. Yeah, translator, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so move on. You've so then more. the
1: conclusion, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm just getting wound up wound because up. the conclusion of this section is then the command to be merciful just as your father mm-hmm. is merciful in Luke 6.36. Now, I don't think it's an accident that Luke's Sermon on the Plain combines the idea of God's Christotes, or goodness kindness with God's character of being merciful mm. and in, in the Septuagint that refrain that echoes throughout the Psalms is phrased Christos kurias eiston iona to Elias out the Lord is good or kind the Lord is Christos his mercy his Elias endures forever huh now of, now, okay, so Luke uses the word oiktermon for mercy. Be merciful, oiktermon, as opposed to the word group of Elias. But they're synonyms. Mm-hmm. Oiktermon and Elias are synonyms. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, both of them mean merciful or compassionate. So they're virtually interchangeable. Here's the thing, though. In the Septuagint version of the Psalms, that refrain, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, Um, in the Psalms, it translates the Hebrew word hesed, Mm
0: -hmm. which
1: a lot of us will know as the word for God's faithful, unfailing covenant love, Mm -hmm. and and really God's unconditional love for us, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this combination of, you know, God is good or kind to those who are ungrateful and the wicked, this combination of that with be merciful as your father is merciful, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's uh, uh, that combination of God's goodness or kindness in uh, with God's quality of being merciful is an accident. I think the idea here is that we're to show to others, all others, the same merciful and unconditional love that God has shown us. That, that unconditional love that endures forever, mm-hmm. that constitutes God's Christos, <laughs> mm-hmm. that God is generous and kind and good, that is... The way in which we're to treat wow. others. So again, I mean, the, the 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 I think we have Luke almost writing into his version of the Sermon on the Plain an echo mm-hmm. of that phrase from the Psalm: from the, Psalms. Mm-hmm. "The Lord is Christos, and His mercy endures forever." Wow. And so here we have God's Christos as the pattern, and so then we're to be merciful, just as your Father wow. is merciful. Wow! Yeah. Now again, the difference between the transactional nature of benefaction or giving or gift giving, uh, as it was practiced in a patron-client situation, and God's unconditional kindness and mercy and love cannot be overstated. Wow! You know, yeah. you just cannot overstate yeah. the fact that God's God gives freely god gives mm-hmm. out of mercy and love god gives unconditionally and and to some extent we might even think god gives with no thought of return
0: right so this is not only a, a statement about who god is yeah. but also really what's expected out of discipleship
1: the ethics mm-hmm. of the kingdom the justice of the kingdom is based squarely right. On the fundamental nature of who God right. is, right? Yeah. So, yeah.
0: sorry to bring this up, but it's not just about saying Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. That's not enough.
1: No, no, it's <laughs> which not. Is,
0: which is kind of the mentality of the day, right? Absolutely, for, for, for many evangelicals, yeah. that that's not enough. Fact, I, I've, you, made, my not yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. made my profession of faith. Yeah, I made my
1: profession of faith, so I'm saved. Exactly. Jesus says, "Oh, really? Show me by how you how yeah. you practice yeah. mercy and love." And just, this is yeah. this
0: is just. And that this is, this is a theme of who God is from God's, the beginning, I mean, really, and through the Old Testament, and no. as Jesus is saying, hey, we need to restore what God has intended for us. Yeah. I'm not sure if I said that right.
1: No, well, yeah, 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 I agree, I agree. And, and, you know, I mean, we need to live as the children of the most high. And right. the way we do that is by emulating his character yeah. and putting his Christos, his generosity, his kindness freely given and his mercy that, that extends love to all unconditionally wow. yeah. into practice in our lives. Yeah. yeah.
0: Good sermon stuff here. Um, well,
1: very, very high, very high uh, standard of uh, expectation as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, again, then we have kind of these ending statements, do not judge and mm-hmm. you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven give and it will be given to you
1: yeah so. and so yeah in luke's sermon on the plane and at least in the revised common lectionary that's where our reading ends um um you know i must say at first glance i'm i have to admit this might seem to be an almost um an irony Yes. You know, because, you know, while it might on one level be simply a logical extension of the theme of loving one's enemies, you know, forgive, right? give, and it will be given to you. But I find it ironical uh, to say the least that after being instructed to lend, expecting nothing in return, there's now mention of a kind of reciprocity. You know, in verse 38, he says, the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, this might reveal a seam in the gospel tradition. Apparently, Luke was aware that the teaching about loving freely and unconditionally and, and this teaching about reciprocity and receiving back what you give were associated. But on the other hand, it's also possible to read this perhaps as a whole different kind of reciprocity from that practiced in conventional society. Uh-huh. Notice that the measure that one receives is one that is marked by extravagant generosity. That's Luke, that's Joel Green's phrase. Uh-huh. Um, In in verse uh, 38, I think it is, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. So, you know, when you think about the the conduct of, of vendors in the market, you know, who does that, right? right? Who who shakes it down, pours more in, shakes yeah, it down, yeah. pours more in and then gets it gets it to, so where it's overflowing. Right. And then right. that's your that's your that's what you bought, right? right. They don't do that. I mean, well, they they just they fill it to the top and when it's full They do it
0: five guys.
1: They do yeah. Do they? If
0: you get French fries at Five Guys, oh yeah.
1: Oh, they pour on the they pour on the French fries. Oh yeah, yeah they Sorry, Alan
0: clearly hasn't been to Five Guys. Doesn't have teenagers.
1: <laughs> I, I I make it a, a point of pride not to eat fried foods.
0: <laughs> again, no teenagers. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: I, I ate too many fried foods when my kids were teenagers. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so so again, you know, this is this is this is not your typical. I mean. Yeah, there are places. There obviously there are places, business places that right. will heap yeah. on the servings of food, right? right, right. But if you're buying grain, right, right. you know, of course you're right. not going to do this, con- right? Even
0: to cheat, you know. When we would look at, uh, I did some studies with Silk Road studies. The whole idea was to cheat and to see mm-hmm. how if you could get them to buy your right. your product when you're thinking you had more than you were actually selling. Right. So you could you, what you, know, you can get away with, yeah, what right you can get away with yeah. get
1: get all that you can. Get all that you can get away with, yeah, right? Take yeah. all that you can get away with. That's exactly. the ethic of 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 society, exactly. and and here the ethic is is give all that you can right, give away. Right. And so the idea is that God's reward for those who live as children of the Most High is extravagantly generous, not this sort of calculating reciprocity of the mm-hmm. the of the the world of Jesus Day or even perhaps the world of our mm-hmm. day. Yeah. So again, this whole section just really echoes with that same theme that we kind of were introduced to with. The beatitudes mm-hmm. and it, it it really brings home this idea that um, you know God's character is the foundation for the justice of the kingdom and that character is defined as generosity and kindness that gives extravagantly beyond expectations and and unconditional love that that you know gives without any expectation mm-hmm. of return mm-hmm. that's the standard of justice wow. in God's kingdom
0: and that's what we learned today yeah, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we'll come back in a little bit and talk about um, how this uh, plays into the Reformers and yeah. the Reformation tradition.
1: Church had a hard time with it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to give Christy a chance to talk with us about how the Reformers reflect the way the church dealt with this uh, very challenging passage.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so Calvin actually cites this quite a bit in his Institutes. And so I, talking about it there, the stuff that they point out in the commentaries is nothing special, nothing particularly unique, just that God's love is, you know, vast and great and and different than how other people understood love. So I'm going to more of the conversation of the Institutes, which has really kind of a main theme, and really it's the relationship between God's kingdom and the secular world, and how they intersect and how our duty as Christians um, cause us to act in the secular world, mm-hmm. um, and then it draws to the bigger question of rulership and how rulers should act, and then this eventually leads to types of discussions so such as just war. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of big kind of theology that comes out of this in terms of um, this, this relationship of God's world and the rest of the world and how this works together. So the first theme is very simple, is that what is right doctrine, and that this is right doctrine. And despite many not liking us, we should be comforted knowing that we have the right doctrine. So in other words, even though the rest of the world is going to treat us in their traditional means, right? Even though they aren't going to have the same kind of reciprocity, we know that this is a doctrine how God has called us to be. So there's clearly a recognition here that um, there are people that um, if the true Christians are going to um, reach out to the others <laughs> yeah,
1: the, the you know dealing with the, you know the, the issue of how the ethic of the kingdom of God conflicts with the ethic of the secular yeah, world
0: exactly. yeah exactly and then, what does it mean to love your enemy? And you know we're talking <laughs> about, the rub. yeah, we are we are talking about um, this era where there's enemies defined oh, by the reformers. I yeah. mean, the Roman Catholic church their enemies. they you know they devils. The the Turks they're devils the Jews are attacked well I mean the 30
1: years war was a war between <laughs> yes. basically a Catholic state and a Protestant yes, state yes. right they
0: 30 years war is yeah they
1: battled is. for 30 years yeah. you know <laughs> that's a generation almost
0: it is it is and the 30 years and and Exactly, but it, there's this whole not love for enemy, right? right. It's, it's it's no, your enemy is your enemy, and you despise them. So they are still the, all the Christians still functioning in a space. So for Calvin, um, this love of your enemy, however, is an imperative of the faith. And it is really interesting here because Calvin points out that our greatest challenge is to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength. And for him, the sovereignty of God and our recognition of it impacts our our call to follow is the challenge for sinners, not uh, the relationships of one another. Um, But we should fall into line with the first commandment. So... Again, loving God is, I'm not sure I made a lot of sense there, but loving God is paramount, that that's our main call, and that we respond from that because of this love.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, um, we love God first, and right. because we love God, we love others. So
0: it's the same kind of idea of freedom that we had last week. If indeed we are loving God, that frees us up then to mm-hmm. love others. From our
1: human nature uh-huh, to be uh-huh. able to love but others. But this yeah. is
0: a spiritual thing for Calvin. This is, this is loaded in the spiritual realm and then it happens to pour out in how we act. But the reality is they seem to have this recognition that the real world doesn't work this way because in the real world, mm. many people really aren't aren't yeah. true Christians. Yeah. And and this is where, the, as, as Calvin seems to think, if indeed the world did work this way, where everybody really did um, fall into line as, as true Christians, and we would have this kind of true Christian charity. Of course, that's what Geneva was trying to set, set up, right? Right. right. Um, so, there's practical advice, which gets us really into the weeds. And so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> into the thick of things. So. Yes.
0: So the, the command really instructs us at, um, as the Christians to respond in grace and kindness, but not for an eye for an eye, but rather to forgive and pardon those who attack us. Yet, despite the attacks, it is still appropriate for a Christian to support the magistrate in upholding the common commonweal. Okay. So in other words they the the magistrate as being part of God's world is indeed responsible to God and chosen by God and this takes us to this reality that we don't have a division between church and state that God is sovereign over yeah. everything and that people are born into certain Spaces in life that you're born, you know, we talked about this just a little bit ago. If you're a part of nobility or if you're in the peasantry and if you are. You could be
1: born into the magistrate, magistrate class as well. class. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there is a spiritual realm, this kind of ideal love, and there's this practical realm. And God is indeed involved with both of them. And,
1: and that wasn't that wasn't unique to Calvin I think Luther went there before yes, him, right
0: yes yes Luther was really really the kind of the reformer we think about when we think about the two kingdoms sure. He was picking up ideas from Augustine although different from Augustine too but um, and it, he influences Calvin because um, Calvin's interpretation does fit within Fit with this construct to some extent, although, again, it's Calvin that's pushing that sovereignty of God, mm-hmm. and Calvin that's more than Luther is. Um, yeah,
1: Luther, in my understanding, you know, the, the there's the two kingdoms, and they sort of run separately, and, and Calvin is much more interested to, s- to show how God is sovereign over both. Right, yeah. correct,
0: correct. Um, so the spiritual world is um, fundamentally different from the secular world, and therefore um, even has different laws. Um, as those who are part of God's kingdom have different laws, so um, they are able to function within God's love. So, in the perfect world, the, um, the those Christians reflect perfect love, or at least are on the path toward that love. But in the world of sinners, there needs to be a practical treatment, and this is that temporal world that requires laws and rules so that society can work. Mm. Um,
1: so, again, it's sort of the ideal and the reality. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So it's an explanation as to why the magistrates continue to rule over people. Um, and they're ruling, they're there and they're functioning there because of the sinful world themselves. Mm. And, and, and Luther's world doesn't tend to elevate them quite as high as Calvin does. Again, that whole sovereignty thing. But it's just like, look, this is just a practical answer to the secular world is that we have to have secular rulers. Um, they're the ones that are going to keep, keep order. Yeah. Um, I found that Luther believed that the word through Scripture would enlighten people to follow God's, God's laws, and so Luther believed initially that if everyone had access to Scripture and could be, you know, uh, um, could read it, and they they would fall into line, if you will, mm. they would be
1: well. They would they would come to faith, and then yeah, they would they exactly, would, and, and the pro- exactly. and, and faith would lead to sanctification, exactly. right? You know, so, so
0: again, and that and thinking about Luther in those terms. Um, then and realizing this didn't happen that just gives the secular magistrates more authority to be able to make sh- to take care of all the people that really aren't christian if you yeah. will that's kind of the attitude but
1: <laughs> I, I chuckle because i think you know how many how many how many people who are christian you know have have broken the law right oh
0: absolutely <laughs> i never speed ever, ever well
1: and you know Yes, speeding is a is a breaking of the law, but I'm thinking about really really serious well, violations right, right, of justice. Yes, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. So then we go back and we think about this in terms of Calvin. So we have Luther out there, and, and Calvin says, "Yeah, we have um, in the perfect world, we you know we function as Christians. We don't necessarily need um, the kind of secular secular world, but the reality is we do because." There aren't true Christians out there, but those magistrates who are appointed by God are indeed there to keep order. And so what's really, really interesting, he keeps the Christian realm separated enough, if you will, this other realm saying that, look, your reward's in heaven um, and your job is to help keep peace here on earth. And so it's your responsibility to follow a magistrate, even if he is evil. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it, 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 and and he says this, and it's it's absolutely insane. A very wicked man should be held in the same reverence and esteem by his subjects, in so far as public obedience is concerned, in which they would hold the best of kings if he were given to them.
1: That is, that is just that blows it, me away. It, it
0: blows. I know.
1: I can't believe it, you say that.
0: So then Of course but, it's a
1: whole different setting, you know, with church and state st- exactly. together. Right? Church
0: and state are together right. and he is still entrusted with keeping some type of public order. Right. And
1: Well, and I think about I think about for Rome, you know, he's I'm sure I'm sure Calvin is thinking about Romans 13 where it talks about the the, the powers, the you know, the, the the rulers of this world and you're you're to obey Christians are to obey them. You know, I'm sure he's thinking right, about it. Exactly that from a biblical standpoint. And that
0: was definitely the mindset. And part of this too is he's responding to radical uh, radical Reformation folks who are literally just going up against magistrates all over the place mm-hmm. saying, you don't have any legitimate right to be ruling and they're getting all kinds of anarchy and chaos. Right. So there's also a response there from Calvin um, saying, look, you have responsibility to work within the system. You can't just go out and overthrow people because you decide it's not, it's not right because God has the higher authority. So he is also responding to that historical reality. Now, I do want to point out because I don't want to leave, completely leave. Luke, excuse me, Calvin in this space, um, and his entire book for the Institutes really focuses on um, this whole idea of church and well, church and state, if you will, secular and sacred, um, and there is room. Actually, he does put in some room for opposing a king if indeed they're checked by some other kind of magistrate. So Uh. someone else who has been called to a similar realm with kind of the similar um, understanding of the world who could perhaps... um, Uh, be more representative of the kingdom.
1: So the authorized magistrate could confront the authorized king if that king were straying outside the boundaries of good and evil. Exactly. I see. But it had to be an authorized magistrate.
0: Yes. But wants us to know our obedience is ultimately to God. Um, so this is a very early modern construct. We're going to be hard on him for saying this because it doesn't fit within our modern world. Sure, but I do think what's interesting here is, and it, yeah, private individuals have no business confronting a magistrate. <laughs> but
1: yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I, I wonder what uh, I wonder what George Washington and and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams would made made of that. Well, exactly. <laughs> and of course,
0: you're talking about a limitation. This is pre Enlightenment, right? But as we as we get to see, and Alan had brought up the Thirty Years' War. As we get to see at the end of the Thirty Years' War, when these these nations, uh, these early nations that are 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 both no division of church and state, start to function separately from their religious identities, mm. that happens at the end of the Thirty Years' War. By sixteen eighteen, when it ends, we are actually seeing kind of the emergence of the the beginnings of a separation of church and state Mm -hmm. where it's where nations aren't necessarily defined by religion and that starts to pull apart as we get some of the early ideas of the enlightenment start to come in um and that's going to shift it so there's going to be this recognition of um the order of the church so you're going to see these enlightenment figures that form the united states using basically Calvin's um, organization of the church as the organization for the United States Constitution. Sure, sure. So it becomes really interesting, but there's fundamental difference are the, the religious freedom that people have and the concepts of religious freedom really start, you could say somewhat with Queen Elizabeth, hmm. um, actually, as you have this, um, in England you have this, uh, um, where she allows both Roman Catholics and Protestants right, to right. function, but it doesn't come to its fruition really until till we hit kind of the mid 17th century. And we mm-hmm. start to realize that, um, we get this kind of high, uh, emphasis on individual spirituality.
1: Well, and, and John Locke and Rousseau, their exactly. ideas start to influence yep. political thinking and yep. influence the, yep. the people who are, who exactly. are behind the, uh, the various, uh, right. Movements for declaration of human right. rights and, and that individual kind of thing. rights. And mm-hmm. there aren't, the no, kind of rights know, there are, are not individual exist here. rights there. exactly yeah, yeah. so
0: we have to always look at calvin and luther all these folks within the kind yeah. of not only the the political constraints but the intellectual constraints of their age as well and um, sure. so That's i do think this gives some space as they said to kind of flip to the next the next level right. to to, to right. flip to the modern world from the early modern world sure yeah
1: that sounds fascinating yeah. thanks, thanks. Hi friends, we're back, and uh, we thought we'd talk a little bit about this. Um, how does the kingdom of God relate to the kingdom, the secular kingdom of the world? And you know, when you think about this, my mind goes to Richard Niebuhr's uh, "Christ and Culture," and you know, you got the, the the five paradigms: Christ against culture, the Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture in paradox, or sort of a dualism, and that's where Luther. Comes and then Christ, the transformer of culture, and um, uh, Niebuhr puts Augustine and Calvin in that in that kind of framework. Um, I was kind of pushing back a little bit, uh, though, because. Uh, I, it tr- you know, I, when I hear the language of the the kingdom of God versus the secular kingdom, I think it reinforces in people a popular notion that my spiritual life and what I do at church is separate from my real life and what I do right, in, right. in you know uh, elsewhere. Uh, and so, um, what do you think about that, Kristen? Well,
0: you know, as you're saying this, I am thinking about some conversations I've had with folks um, that are. Thinking of sending their children to these parochial schools to basically remove them wow. from being impacted by those kids who go to public school, and um, they're, <laughs> like
1: my kids and your yeah kids? like my kids right, <laughs>
0: um, and this idea that their job as Christians is to raise them exclusively within mm. this narrow view of other mm. Christians so that wow. they're impacted by them for the good and they won't get impacted by secular humanism right exactly (laughs) the
1: great boogeyman of the 1980s (laughs) exactly
0: and it's it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting mindset that they have and i'm thinking um, first of all, their idea that these kids are good, and those kids are bad—it
1: right. <laughs> seems to it's be abs- a bit naive about parochial schools. <laughs>
0: and and it's it's you know it's really opposite of what God would have us do. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. And so that's the first thing that came to mind was how to that this really mentality still exists in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, also I think we can learn so much from folks that are different from us. Um, we learn how to tolerate, be tolerant and we learn how to be giving and we learn how to, um, realize that, that people have different histories and backgrounds and, um, um, heritage and gender identity and family, um, family situations where you're talking about some parochial schools where everybody everybody is comes the same, from the same they're yeah, all
1: social status so the same they can yeah, all afford
0: everything. to send their kids to the right. super expensive exclusive school where you know because of the the limited um um, expectations, I guess the expectations of their, if you will, in quotes, Christian behavior that, you know, they're only happily married families with several children of each course, that live in the same, all, all those things that that are very counter to, I think, what what we just read today.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think, so for me, you know, part of my response is is to say that, um if 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 asked you know what did jesus think about the relationship between the kingdom of god and the kingdom of this world or as we as we commented you know jesus is presenting the ideal but surely he was aware that the reality of the world doesn't does not conform to that ideal and will not conform to that ideal until the kingdom comes in all its fullness um so you know what would be the relationship between the kingdom of God and the and the kingdom of this world? Um, and to me, I, I I'm, I'm sort of mixing metaphors a little bit because I'm using a, a metaphor from Paul. Uh, I think the kingdom of God is like a ferment that is that is permeating the world, this world, and as it does so, it is transforming this world. Right. And so that 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 you know, Christ transforming culture is is the model that I I. Uh, embrace as well
0: yeah right
1: and 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 so you know and I think that's part of what we saw last week with the Beatitudes but we saw this week again with this whole idea of the command to love uh, freely unconditionally without restrictions even including those who are hostile toward you even including the, those that we consider a threat the enemy mm-hmm. uh, uh, giving them the same love you would give family and friends right. without expecting anything in return. That kind of love (laughs) that emulates God's uh, goodness and mercy um, um, that is that is the heart and soul of the ethic of the kingdom and the ethic of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. That to me that is the meaning of salvation. Right. You know, we were talking. I mean, we were talking about the you know some of the folks who have a little more superficial expectations about what the Christian life means. It, you know, it has has very little to do with what you say you believe, right. or very little to do with, with who you associate with. Right. It has everything to do with how you live your life and the character, you know, how you how you emulate God's character in I, your life.
0: I agree. And as you're talking, I keep thinking about your friend, Jürgen Moltmann. Yes. And, yeah. and, of course, I think when we look at Calvin and Luther, we're looking at a couple things. First, they I think these reformers, as they... Um, began this kind of process. I mean, they they didn't see themselves. They thought, saw themselves as restoring the true church, not mm-hmm. not reforming it, and and restoring it. I think they were both very, very optimistic about if if only people if only people fell into god's love and fell into faith they they would get it right. and, and so i think there's this kind of vision versus them, this an kind of reality hits this, this yeah. idealism and and then as they get writing you know i think i think also what is their what is their fundamental truth and so for moltmann it was love yeah. but for calvin it's sovereignty of god and so you're seeing you're seeing how that impacts as they're writing out the steps of this and so
1: Mm, i see i
0: I think it impacts then how we how we conceptualize of what they're of what they're doing and um you know luther i suppose faith is his fundamental fundamental salvation by faith Uh apart from works right Yeah, yeah yeah
1: Yeah, you know, as I think about Moltmann, I think you're you're right. I mean, this whole concept of God's unconditional love that knows no boundaries—that is the—that is the foundation of of Moltmann's theology, and even among some uh, contemporary theologians, I heard one guy once say that that Moltmann had strayed into some this sort of weird territory on some of his eco theology and things like that, and and. You know, I've read through all those works, and, and there's a there's an inherent coherence between it. It's all a working out of that fundamental right, basis right, of right. you know the idea of God as this right. as this unconditional, unbounded, you know right. love. Right. And um, uh, you know, unfortunately, early on in the history of the church, the church fathers began to sort of uh, to sort of add qualifications to this you know, um, well, do you have the right to retaliate against someone who is threatening to take your life? Right. You know, Do you have a right to, to retaliate against someone who is threatening to take your property? Right. I think Jesus shows us the answer to that. I mean, his right. example was... To die on the cross, yeah,
0: right? Exactly, And, and that—that exactly. that
1: was the embodiment of God's love, right? Exactly. And 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 yet, unfortunately, you know, we do live in a social order where there have to be some kind of norms and standards. Right. And and yet, I think the thing that I would want to say is, we shouldn't claim somehow that if we believe that there, there is a rationale for a just war, that that reflects God's purposes in the world. Exactly. That is that not is what, God's And that's purpose. what
0: Calvin would say, actually. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, yeah. And, and uh, of course, Calvin, Calvin who comes from the sovereignty of God, of course, and remind you, you know, a few centuries before Moltmann, so you have to always put him into right. context, right. but that sovereignty of God is where he is coming from, trying to make sense of if God is sovereign over everything, then how do we explain human sin is is a big part of it. And I think that would be reflective of, yeah, we're not in this perfect world, right? right. We're not, and we have to have some means by which we live in this world and and add some order to it. Because unfortunately, we're all going to fall short of Christ.
1: Well, and, you know, so for example, I've had this discussion with folks in my church about immigration. Oh, immigration, yes. and I've had this discussion on Facebook with some friends as well. Immigration is the big, you know, um, Gordian knot that everybody's trying to figure out. And, and you know, one of the things I've said is, you know, the Bible's teaching about how God's people are directed to treat immigrants is very clear mm-hmm. we're to we're to we're to treat them with compassion and kindness right. Right. with dignity right. and and we're to we're to um welcome them right. you know welcome the stranger we're you know we're huh? to extend this right. love that knows no bounds to them right. now that's how we're to treat them personally I have no idea what that means for government policy in terms of immigration policy, because obviously, you know, no, no immigration policy, I don't know, it may or may not be sustainable. Um, I think, I do think our immigration policy could use a lot more compassion in it and a lot more right. human dignity in it. But, right. um, I have no, I, I make no pretense to be able to, to figure that out. And, and maybe some might say, well, they might cry foul. Well, you, you're, you're, you're talking about Christ transforming culture, but you're really retreating into Christ and culture and paradox where there's a dualism.
0: Right, right.
1: I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I guess I'm just trying to recognize that, you know, uh, for me, my fundamental concern is how do God's people um, live out right. the justice of the kingdom?
0: Yeah. My,
1: my fundamental concern is not about how the state treats political problems. But I
0: think what you've identified here is this isn't necessarily – simple no and I think you've identified actually some of the same kinds of things that both Calvin and Luther confronted in in their experience and that's part of this human experience so it's a really um it's a really trying time to figure out how it it works and I think I think Niebuhr's book there is actually and we know it's older now but I like how he at least attempts to make some sense out of it um and I do think um where we as Presbyterians fit in nicely is are reformed and continue to reform is that we continue to examine what we do, what kind yeah. of policies we support. And we're willing to say, Oh, we were wrong. We did not. And we don't become dogmatic about something that, that was a choice made maybe in the, in the 19th century that we now know was the wrong choice. And we say, no. And we move ahead because, we are in with a living god who is guiding us now
1: well and i'm thinking about that you know in my congregation we're also having this conversation about racism we're in, we're engaged in a listening exercise where we're where we're listening to some stories of people in different from different, uh, you know, walks of life as a way of sort of sensitizing us to the fact that not everybody has the same life experience that we have. And and there are a lot of people who, like me, are recognizing, oh, my views about race have changed even in the last 10 years. Absolutely, yeah. So, it, you know, it's, it's yeah, I, I agree. I like that part about how we continue to examine ourselves. And I think that's something that gets you know it's 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 strongly in our reformed theology it's strongly in the book of order it's i mean you read the part about about church membership and one of the one of the fundamental points of of active church membership is that you Regularly examine your membership, your active right. participation in the church, church's right. Ministry, right. mission and reevaluate you know, the extent of which you're, you're engaged in that. Yeah. And we kind of skip over that. We don't really want to push people into that discomfort zone. Right. I, I think I've said this before, and maybe this is a simplistic solution. I don't know. But I've said this before. I think for us as Christians, the key is to continue to hold our feet to the fire yeah, we just we don't bypass these kind of passages that make us make us feel uncomfortable. We continue to hold them out I in agree. front of us. I
0: agree.
1: Recognizing that we may not live up to them ever in this right. life, right? But we continue to strive right. toward f- right. making that ideal the guiding uh, principle of our lives. I agree. And and so. That's been, I guess, in terms of practicality, that's been the best solution I can come to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going out and selling everything I have so that I can follow Jesus. I, I you know, I, I right. need some things to live. Right. And and um, you know, uh, it's a, it's a. These are some of the some of the real where the water hits the wheel questions yeah, about the Christian I life. I agree. Yeah,
0: I agree. Well, thank you for listening.
1: Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.